everyone. This is the Book Lovers Movie Club, and I am Kim Cox. And I'm Sarah Day. And today we're going to be doing something a little bit different because we're going to be talking about some documentary films, which is um, not a genre that I watch a ton of. I know that some Same. people really do, but I don't watch a ton of them. Although every time I do, I'm like, this was really great. I should watch more documentaries, but then I just don't think of them. Don't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so well, we'll and, and I feel like lately it's like documentary almost seems to translate directly to true crime. Yeah, so, well, so and exciting I to, to find a documentary that's not mm -hmm. about a woman being murdered horribly or like a child being kidnapped. Yeah, and there are so many out there, but they're not yes. always as easy to find. So when you like, I you know when the Oscars come around, you get a, you see all these nominees for um, best documentary, but then can you find them to watch? Not always. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, but we are watching um, two today. Um, Sarah, can you give us their yeah know, the um, in front of we'll you? Be, I think um, discussing the loving story from 2011 and the uh, or a secret love from 2020. Great. Um, before we jump into those, um, did you get a chance to watch? Uh, American fiction? Did you get to go see I it? I did. How was and it? And it was very good. Um, I was a little conflicted on a couple of things. First, first and foremost, I now have a clear preference for Jeffrey Wright to be the best actor uh, winner at the Oscars. I Ooh, don't okay. think he will be, but I think his performance in this is exactly as you'd expect if you if you've been following Jeffrey Wright's career because he's yeah. just a very um, he's a very grounded actor, right? Like mm -hmm. he kind of keeps things. Um, very centered without being really showy it's not it's not a showy performance at all but it's also very very funny um and of course because he's an academic he's a creative writer who's a professor in a university mm -hmm. um, a lot of it's just stuff that like is going to be funny to us to word nerds familiar with that um, but it gets really into like the it gets into the questions of publishing the industry's sort of expectations, what it means to be a, a black author and to write about the black experience mm -hmm. um, because of the the ways in which that that assumption that there is a black experience flattens right. um, the the kinds of stories that are accepted by public by publishers and published and, and put out into the world. Um there, the performances are all the way across the board, really, really good. But I would say I don't. I feel like there's a lot that could have been done with gender here, and it kept getting kind of close to thinking about hmm. um, how things are different for Black women, um, and what kind of emotional labor and and what kind of um, uh, a sort of challenges they face that aren't really being discussed in the movie. Like they're gestured toward, and there's uh, several women doing amazing performances. Um, Tracy Ellis Ross is great. Mm -hmm. um, Erica Alexander is amazing. Um, and then of course, Issa Rae plays this black author uh, and she gets a couple of like really great lines, but the whole time I kept thinking like, Oh, I just want to, I want to see more of them. I want to hear more yeah. from them. Yeah. Uh, and then the ending, I'm not sure how I feel about, but okay. on the whole, I would say it's, it's definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, it, partly I think for just getting at its subject in a much more tight focused way than some of the other movies that are up for best picture this year. Um, but partly because it's, it's funny. It, I think it, it plays it a little safe with the satire sometimes. Um, but I think it also, I can see why it might feel like it has to. Um, yeah. And I think just by and large, like just in terms of the the writing and the performances on the whole, I think 
just really, really well done. So I hope you get to see it sometime soon because I think you'd enjoy it more than you might yeah. expect for a satirical. Yeah, no, I comedy. definitely am going to watch it as soon as I'm able. And I know it's streaming now, but it's still pretty expensive to rent. Yeah, it. wait um, until yeah, wait until it costs like what it would cost to see in a movie theater. I would yeah. say I'm kind of just that's more of a principle in general than a uh, response to this particular movie. I yeah, just if I was like, going to be watching it with like a whole, my family yeah. or whatever, then I might pay $25 to rent it because it would be less than going to see it in a movie theater, but it's just going to be me. So yeah, I'll wait yeah. a minute. Um, but you know, <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I got to see it. I promise not to go off on a huge long tangent about this, but when you were just talking about like, um, what does it mean to represent the quote unquote black experience in um, in fiction or film or anywhere else, mm -hmm. but in fiction for this movie and like how are men and women being shown in these and how might they approach it differently? It just made me immediately think of like what was happening in the Harlem Renaissance and how there was this whole conversation about like what kind of black experience should we show? Um, it was a whole um, argument amongst um, black writers and scholars and performers and musicians and all sorts of people. Um, and also was happening kind of again um, in like the 60s and 70s. And I wonder if it's happening again now. And we just are not quite aware of it in the same way as you can well, tell when you look what back. Extent yeah, um, to what extent is it because uh, there haven't been major changes in editing and publishing mm -hmm. um, over the course of that time? Yeah. Um, like statistically, it's just depressing. But there's also the movie, um, what's it called? It's coming out this spring and I'm going to get it wrong. But it's like the Society for Magical Black Negroes or something like that is the name of the movie. It's like that some may, funny name. I saw, um, preview, I saw some chatter about that on Facebook a while back. And I think Jeffrey writes in that one too, isn't he? Is he? Um, I think but so. It's, it, and we've also got The Other Black Girl, which is about this same idea of like, how do you represent... Um, I mean, the the story in the book is about black women in the workplace, but the workplace is publishing. And there's a lot of discussion within the world of the story about like what kinds of black stories and black characters can you portray and what will sell and what won't. So I wonder, there seems there's a fair amount of discourse happening. And certainly there's more than this, um, but it's just, you know. Yeah. I know what you're. I know what you're talking about. I don't know what the name of it is, and Jeffrey Wright does not appear to be in it. But mm. um, I, I will say, I just want to correct myself from the Oscars episode. This movie was based on a book. Um, mm. I didn't know the book existed. It's called Erasures by Percival Everett. Okay. And um, and now I would like to read it because apparently it does have like more sections of the book within the book, like um, the mm. book mm -hmm. that Monk writes um to sort of call the industry out and i'd be interested to see because the yeah. movie out of necessity right because the movie is is not three hours long right uh thankfully um <laughs> it's so nice to see movies that are not three hours long yeah. um it, it really just kind of really briefly sort of addresses the content of the book and how he writes it Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd be interested to see more. And and I just think in general, like the most cutting or the most scathing thing about it is that he's asked to be part of a um, committee of judges for a literary award. Mm -hmm. And um, so on top of sort of like skewering the publishing industry for the way that it handles his text in the first place, um, it also gets at how how prizing works. Yeah. Um, and who's making the decisions about prizes and they're mostly having these like sort of Zoom or phone call conversations. And so you're cutting between these five different characters responding to various texts. Um, but when they're all in the 
in one room at the final decision-making day, it's really gets at sort of like, okay, but the dynamics here are, are not resolved. Like we're not actually addressing some of the biggest questions um, because the people who get to make the decisions are still outweighing the people whose voices mm -hmm. should be taken most seriously. And right. anyway, it's just, um, who's it's really who is being take. centered and who is being and, and both in the like in, in what's being published, who decides and, and, and who decides which gets valued. Yeah. So definitely a, a book nerd book or a book nerd movie, but, um, that's great. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it, but yeah, no, I'm with you. I think, uh, having, having not watched a ton of documentaries, I was excited to kind of tackle our, true love week um um before we jump into that um the name of the movie i was thinking of is the american go. society of magical negroes and it comes out this spring um i believe in the spring so um, okay and it's a you satire it. comedy so um lots okay. of satire happening okay um now we can shift gears <laughs> um <laughs> i i've been thinking a lot about the fact that john stewart came back to the daily show this week oh yeah i didn't watch it i haven't watched i don't i don't watch um TV, I guess is what I should say. Like, yeah. I was like, TV I that watch, comes on like at a I don't certain watch, time. Yeah, scheduled no, scheduled shows that happen on a regular basis. I do not no, watch. Um, I just binged my way through another Netflix miniseries that I can do. Um, but like the the sort of sense that um, the Daily Show somehow needed rescuing and that John Stewart was here to do it is sort of fascinating uh, in terms of like the larger set of questions that come with documentaries and nonfiction in general and satire um, in mm -hmm. terms of like the narratives, how we approach them, what, what do we gain from the sort of insights being offered? What role does humor play in understanding these? Because um, a secret love in particular has some really funny moments. Um, but also like the seriousness of, of some of these questions and how mm -hmm. we get at the, at the heart of those questions through the media that we either consume or produce. So yeah. that was just a rambling. I'm no, not no. actually sure that that got anywhere, but. Um. <laughs> well, it's interesting. It's interesting that you brought up Jon Stewart too, especially considering um, our little discussion we were just having about um, what's happening in the world of like, um, you know, African-American literature. And is this another kind of Renaissance moment where we're thinking where black authors are thinking about and, and movie producers and directors are thinking about what to represent and how um, it's interesting that Trevor Noah is who was just left the daily show and they couldn't find anyone good to replace him. So it had John Stewart had to come back is apparently what happened. Like they were looking for a replacement and they couldn't find anyone. I'm like, what are you talking about? couldn't find where, where were you looking I mean I used to watch the daily show religiously I have laughed at many a thing that Jon Stewart has said over the years mm -hmm. um I'm, you know it's just it's just one of those things where it's like it's, it's fascinating how these stories get told and and what aspects are getting sort of heightened mm -hmm. um He's starting to veer too close to smugness for me. Um, and I can't I can't handle smugness. Like no matter how much the person might agree with me, if the attitude is smug, I can't take it. Um, like I don't like Rachel. I don't like to watch Rachel Maddow. Never have because she just the tone is smug and I hate it. Um, and Bill Maher's the same way. Like I don't I just hate the, the I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, 
it makes it's funny, it... I don't I don't watch any of these things and any of these people and yet I encounter them in these like random spaces and ways. My grandmother adores Rachel Maddow. Yeah, I mean, so if I, you go to my my nana's house, you probably agree about everything. I, I can't hear you. And I, oh, would you? <laughs> can you hear me? Now I can. Yes. Okay. It's Rachel Maddow and I would probably agree about it just about everything, but I hate the delivery. Yeah, the I way that she's saying it. It's probably because I want I don't trust you unless I think that you are you have the ability to question your assumptions about things or learn something new. And that doesn't mean that I'm like she needs to be open to all opinions. That's bullshit. I don't think that. Um, but if you're too smug, then I, I you just don't seem as intelligent to me. Like no matter what. So here's what saying. you should do. Uh, <laughs> just put her on mute and leave the closed caption running, which is what we do at Nana's house. Yeah. And you can just like glance up and see the the things you agree with, and not have to just read the transcript grapple. later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and no, I. Uh, a friend sent me a clip of Bill Maher talking about Killers of the Flower Moon last week, um, specifically about, and this is something I don't think we talked about, but I had railed about this to my mother, uh, how Leonardo DiCaprio is so deeply miscast because he's yeah. way too old to play he's that character. And and also he's not like a young, naive guy. Like he's, mm -hmm. it, you just, I didn't buy that he was any of the things we're supposed to expect Ernest to be. Uh, and my mother has not seen the movie, but has read the book and she was firmly agreeing with me. But I was feeling like, yes, grr. <laughs> and then I see this Bill Maher clip and I'm like, well, yes, you're right. But I hate you. What are you doing? I know. Like, don't don't agree with me. Hmm. Um, I don't hate Bill Maher. I just have no actual investment in Bill Maher. But it is that same sense where I'm like, you know, the delivery of his his great insight, which I had also had at my dining room table and didn't get to share with anyone mm -hmm. was like all right good job bill maher uh and then he went off on something else that was unrelated but i definitely had that moment of like i agree with you i just hate it i don't want i don't want to be on your side stop yes. saying right things yeah uh smugness is also i think at the heart of why i am struggling with bradley cooper forever now oh yeah i can see that um, it's, he's slightly I thought it was sleaze and I think that there is some element of sleaze in Bradley Cooper's performances that's part of it but mm -hmm. I don't automatically hate sleaze yeah. um and I actually think like he can be very very funny in some of the mm -hmm. sleazier roles but it's the general sort of like there's a smugness to him that I I think I respond really badly to uh in yeah. his performances um and it's it's been going it's been getting worse for years because He's been around for a long time. Yeah, he has now. And I loved him on Alias when he was like the nerdy friend. Oh. Um, back never, in like the early 2000s. Never yeah. watched Alias. I didn't know he um, was even on it. Yeah. Well, and and that was back before he was like really famous. And so somewhere along the way, he just picked up this extra, this extra element that I don't that I don't love. So and once he wants them all. Yeah. That's okay. So, but anyway. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about our um, documentaries, Sarah. Yeah, so we're going to start with a, The Loving Story from 2011. And I want to say up front that, like, I feel like The Loving Story, uh, not the documentary, but, like, the story of The Lovings mm -hmm. um, has sort of taken on this, this cultural meaning where most of us kind of know what the case is and what the case decided. But I personally had never studied this. I had never read much more than like newspaper articles about it yeah um so there was a major gap for me in terms of like the the actual human 
side of the Loving versus Virginia case. And so I was right. really glad to, to finally kind of get some of those details, like some of those sketches colored in. Yeah. Um, I had the, the director's name and now I'm, now I do not anymore. I, she recently died, the director. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Um, but it came out in 2011 mm-hmm. and they had found some like recently uncovered archive footage um, which was which I I really am fascinated. I don't know where it came from. Yeah. Um, which gives like very, you know, almost mundane sort of glimpses into the Loving's home and life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's paired with more conventional like news footage. Right. Um and and interviews with their lawyers and things like that. Uh the director was Nancy Bursky. Right. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So this was little this glimpses was kind of, of them, you know, and lots of photographs that are used, kind of interspersed of many of which are really beautifully, yeah, composed. really lovely, um, candid photos, right? Yeah, um, not posed photos, um, and many that show, um, the lovings just being kind of in each other's company in a very mm-hmm. kind of everyday sort of way. Um, you know, he's fixing the car and she's watching or they're at a drag race and he's, you know, preparing the car for the race or um, he there's footage of him like preparing the garden for and yeah. putting on she's putting on the kids shoes and just very simple things. Um, and then occasional footage of the two of them, you know, outside the courthouse. But he generally did not go um, to yeah. the he did not join. Um, he did not go with the lawyers to the cases unless he absolutely had to be there um, to, like, speak to something. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he didn't really participate. So there's not a whole lot of that more formal footage. It's fascinating. So, okay, I guess briefly, for people who are unfamiliar with this um, historical event, uh, Mm. the Lovings were a couple who got married in the 1960s, 60s or 50s? Mm. Um, (laughs) Late 50s, early 60s. I'll fact check while um, you keep talking. In a small town in um, Virginia, where what was then legally referred to as miscegenation was still illegal, uh, as it was in 15 other states. Um, and when they got married, she was 18 and he was about 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that the film gestures toward and I wish had really spent a little bit more time addressing is, I, and I think we can believe her when she says she didn't know this was against the law. Which is fascinating. How but could it she seems not have known? fairly clear that he did and either didn't tell her or didn't convey that to her clearly enough. Um, but one thing that seemed sort of left on the table was if he did know it was illegal, why they would, why he would do it. Mm-hmm. And and I think what's happening there to some extent is that I think he thought either that their little town was sort of protected from this because... Right of the dynamics of race in this tiny place where they lived or that his whiteness would protect them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the film sort of puts out there that it's likely that he knew. Yeah. um, And then that they did it anyway, um, but doesn't really come back to the, like the why of it, but he's very insistent that partly it is just that he's an American and it has right to marry who he loves. Mm -hmm. Um, but also that, like, yes, there were some easy solutions to this. 
easy. He could divorce his his illegally married wife, um, or they could just leave Virginia. And right. and neither of those options was on the table for him. He wanted yeah. to be married to Mildred, and he wanted to live in this small town where they had both grown up where all of their family and their friends were. So, um, but you're totally, it's, you're totally right that he seems to feel like when they first kind of get in touch with these lawyers, um, he's like, just go talk to the judge. Can you just go (laughs) explain that? Like, we're not going to cause any trouble for anybody. And you just talk to him and the lawyer. I love my wife. I'd like to not how this works. works. Um, I mean, and the film is kind of, I think, only kind of deals with how much of this was um, driven by, a, a obviously, a very racist sheriff right? who was harassing them and, and wanting to sort of demonstrate his power. But the film is interested in the much larger discourse of, of racism. Right. So the fact that this one particular sheriff was a racist asshole is given less time than the fact that like, yes, but so were all of these other people in positions of authority who get to make decisions. And so his decision to knock on their door at two in the morning and haul them off to jail. Mm -hmm. um, Knock on the door, but then just go in. Right, yes. And them out of their beds. Yes, and then threaten her because she was alone in a cell. um, Basically threaten her with rape. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's a lot of human... uh, or sort of uh, betrayal of, of human human uh, rights, human rights, decency, yes. human anything. Um, but then like when we hear the the lawyers and the judges as they go through the various stages of the trial who are just finding more formal ways right. to have horrible opinions. Um, which or in the pass, end are the or pass the buck. Or pass horrible. Yeah. Just like be um, completely unwilling. I'm not to actually going to all. like do anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story is really fascinating because Mildred was, I don't think I had ever really clocked how young she was. Yeah. She was only 18, had only ever been in this tiny place in Virginia. And when they moved to DC, she was miserable, yeah. obviously. Um, away from home, raising three very small children, you know without the pretty crappy conditions where they were Mm -hmm. where they had to live as well um whereas if they were back in virginia like his parents who seemed legitimately to be like it's fine he loves her like you know Mm -hmm. yeah a very very boring interview with his mother who does little more than like you can tell where he gets it (laughs) he's so silent throughout the entire movie and they're like how do you feel and she's like fine are you okay with yes do you have anything to say about that? No. <laughs> um, yeah, we have. So- I would say that like this becomes such a huge story because the Loving versus Virginia case changed national law, right, mm-hmm. and made it illegal throughout the United States to prevent to forbid people from getting married outside of their race, and so it becomes a huge, important landmark civil rights case. But not because the Lovings were activists or were pushing right. for this or were any of that. They just happened. Um, Mildred happened to write a letter on the advice of a friend to mm-hmm. the right people, and they took up the case. And because the ACLU is invested in this sort of thing. That's why the law was changed. Yeah. You know, Mildred and Richard, Richard, Richard. Yes. Robert. Oh gosh. Um, Richard. The Lovings. 
Um, they, you know, desperately wanted to be able to live in their hometown near their families as a family, as a married couple with their children and be left alone. Um, they wanted this badly enough to go through all of this and wait and be under threat of arrest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for years and years. But they didn't have the kind of wherewithal or the drive to kind of push it through the courts. So it's really yeah. lucky that they got, um, you know, some people involved early on that were, you know, the right people. So, yeah. Um, and then, and I think that the the documentary does sort of briefly touch on this, right? It, it gestures towards the, the chronological moment. Um, we see some footage from the March on Washington, but we hear Mildred in an interview say like, we weren't involved in civil rights. I never met mm -hmm. Martin Luther King. Like I would have liked to, but, but that this wasn't um, at least initially in her mind, I think at all something that she thought of as part of this larger right. set of conditions. Um, and it feels like eventually the, the larger impact of the case was clear to her. Yeah. Um, and she does say, it's not just about us. This is mm -hmm. this is hopefully going to help other people, um, but I think the, the the documentary does a really nice job setting up like the the kind of contrast between this one specific couple and the larger implications and how those connections weren't there from the beginning. That yeah, they were were two sort of parallel situations that that. Because, like you said, because Mildred wrote a, a letter that got to the right people, mm -hmm. um, were able to kind of converge and and become this bigger story. Um, and, yeah, to, Richard, and to his credit, because she wrote to Bobby Kennedy and he was like, yes. I can't help you, but write to these people instead. Here are the people he got can. a letter back, which is kind yeah. of... Like, can you imagine um, that happening now? No. And, and it is fascinating because as um, just as, as Richard's mother is not particularly vocal... When we are watching Mildred and Richard, like he is almost entirely silent mm -hmm. throughout the entire footage that we have of him. Um, Mildred speaks much more often than he does. And she doesn't speak a lot. And she doesn't speak a lot. And um, and so there's a, a quietness to him. And then, of course, in contrast to that, we have their lawyers um, who are still alive, who give yeah. extensive modern. They were very young when they, they took were this case. babies when they took this case they were just I mean, out of Rich law school talked about how years. he was out yeah he couldn't even he was only two years out of law school so he wasn't even allowed to which i didn't know certain, was a, i didn't know that was a yeah, thing to, to do certain things in terms of the supreme court case you could argue before i know i learned some stuff or um, that you got a quill the first time that you <laughs> argued before the supreme court i didn't know that either that's fascinating new information yeah um but it is interesting to sort of hear the two of them now as older men sort of ruminating on their experience, mm -hmm. especially because um, there's this sort of lingering, like the prejudices are still part of this, right? Um, one of them talks about how he immediately was suspicious of Richard because Richard was a redneck mm -hmm. and I like, looked at him and he was like, hmm. and like, and so they're still bringing, they're still bringing, you know, in, in that case, I think some very like Yankee, you know, New England or New York, Mm -hmm. ideas about the south um but it was sort of fascinating to hear how they they sort of reasoned through it how they reacted to it but at the same point i think the movie is careful not to make them the 
center of the story for too long. Yes, I agree. They do the um they do the work that has mm-hmm. to be done to get the law changed and you know they do the work that your lawyer does, right? That you have that's why we have lawyers is cuz they know the law and they have to do the work. Otherwise people would just go in and stand in front of a judge and do it themselves. Um so they do the hard work of arguing the case and they know how to do that. So they are certainly very important to the story and there's some great footage yeah some really great footage of them talking um through what they're going to do and i love how every interaction between um these two lawyers um they're a little bit prickly with each other Mm -hmm. it's like you can tell that they are um that it seems like their dynamic is to push back against each other, but they work really well together. Yeah. Um, which is what you would want from, you know, if you have two lawyers on your team, you would want them to push back so that you're getting the best ultimate outcome. It was kind of great to see it. Um, yeah. But and, and again, without getting too in, and I think I, I read a little bit of criticism of the movie that was like the, the judicial side isn't given enough detail you can't follow the legalities of the trial and was like do most of us have the the vocabulary and knowledge we would need to really understand some of the like they spend about four minutes discussing this decision that was essentially kind of like all right we're not making a decision but if they don't make a decision then we'll make a decision Mm -hmm. and then like and they're they're sort of talking through how even as like experienced knowledgeable lawyers there's a they have to read this thing over and over and over again Mm -hmm. and then they have to be able to to articulate what they have interpreted it to mean yeah mildred on the phone and i was like this is valuable i think to see the process but also not be expected to keep up with all of the details of it like there's generally a reason why a case goes all the way to the supreme court is that it couldn't be decided in the lower courts which means it's probably complicated (laughs) right and probably even then there was no guarantee that it was going to the supreme court right since they choose so few cases to see um and of course seeing this this yeah seeing this right now (laughs) with all of our contemporary oh my gosh uh it was really interesting to kind of have I mean, this movie is only like a little more than a decade old, but it's already, I think, you know, the ways we talk about mm-hmm. justice are still tied up in, in so much historical and contemporary stuff that it has different resonances probably from even when it came out. Well, and there's the point in the movie, too, where they're showing the the, the justices who are on the Supreme Court and it looks so different from what the court looks like now. Right. It is all old white-haired white men (laughs) like all of them stern-faced white old dudes right and you have to be a certain age to be on the supreme court not legally but by the time you're far enough along in your career you would be in the supreme court you're probably you're not 20 um but i will admit that there was this moment when i was watching them show like where they were showing each of these justices one at a time and then showed the full court sitting there and you know this the famous kind of supreme court pictures that they that they take where they're the half of them are sitting and half of them are standing behind them that kind of picture um i know i know that the that the case is um you know, settled in the loving's favor and that it changed the law but when they show all these justices i was like oh no 
<laughs> immediately what I was thinking. It's like, oh gosh, this is gonna be hard. So I when it comes back unanimously unanimous. mm -hmm. in favor of the lovings, I was like, unanimous? What? All these old uh, yes. white dudes. And so that was kind and of there's awesome. that brief clip um of the um the interplay between Chief Justice Warren and the lawyer for the other side, whose name I don't remember now, yeah. who's just spewing racist nonsense about, um, you know, like the children of think of, of the these children. interracial marriages are often referred to as martyrs or victims, victims, and, victims um, of interracial marriage. Oh my God! And the the Supreme Court justice sort of just being like, really, huh? So how about religion? And the guy being like, oh, that's not the same as religion, uh -huh. right? Like, I think we um, would show that. Yeah, I think we would show that they are that it is worse. No, like, that's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just um, having just like, even that short clip. I was like, that's is like because you say so. Right. <laughs> it was really it was really I don't know how much of that recording exists. I don't know how you get yeah. access to it. Yeah, but I was great. I loved that 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 was maintained and yes. and offered because on the whole, like this is a fairly, I think, sort of standard documentary format mm -hmm. um, where you get this the plot sort of unfolds in chronological order. Yeah. But it's being told kind of by these various combinations of archival footage archival archival photos mm -hmm. um and interviews with um people now and sadly the, the loving's life after this was actually deeply tragic too yeah. which is sort of hinted at but not really un like uncovered um because there's no interviews with the loving's themselves now so it's evident to us that they that they're not around um well, at the end of the Except movie, they say, and so they finally reveal right that Richard died, he, and um, he dies, and he's only he was only forty. But he was only forty one, which means that like she couldn't have been. She was in her mid thirties, yeah, thirties maybe. So like when the end of the movie happens, and in you know, and we find out, like, is it at the end of the movie, or did I Google it? No, it is very briefly at the end of the movie. It is at the so end like of the movie. So, like, the, the trial is resolved. They are able to to publicly home, live in Virginia again. Builds her the house, mm -hmm. just like, just, you know, down the block from Right, like this land his parents lived. had given them. Uh-huh. And um, he's hit by a car? No, they were right? driving home and a dunk driver hit their car. Right. He was killed and she was injured, but she right. didn't die. But and she lived the rest of her life in the house that he built yeah. her. So she, she died nine years later. He's 45, yes. nine years later, which means at the end of this documentary, when the court case. So the court called, case took nine years and then eight years after that. Eight years died. later. Okay. So he, so that would mean that he is 37 when the court case is resolved ish. Okay. So 45. To, he looks 50. Yeah. It's, it's such the which would mean if he's, farmer. If he's 37 at the end of the documentary, the footage from like the very earliest footage, he's in his 20s. Yeah, they're young. And he looks very old. Doesn't he? Yeah. Like, I'm not I trying think, to say this in an I'm not no, trying to say this in a cruel way, but like I couldn't believe it when I was doing the math. I'm like, what do you say? He's 28? Yeah, he did he not live very pictures? long, but it's that it's that sense. I think partly it's the black and white, and he was very, very blonde. That's so he true. White haired, but um, yeah, no, I but think his he, face he just, just doesn't. His face just looks much older. He's a very serious and quiet person too, um, which I think lends that. And she's, 
much more young and girlish. And so the contrast probably. Yeah. But I just know the the story, the only of their, the only one of their children who survived into 2011 was their daughter, Peggy. Both of her brothers had already died by then. No. And they were not that old. Um, it was just, it, you know, obviously the movie is wanting to prioritize the case and not the the aftermath or their lives mm-hmm. after this this decision. Um, but it is sort of it's sort of depressing as you're watching to realize how few of the people from these pictures and these videos are around yeah. to tell this story. You want it um, to have been something that you know, improved the lives and situation of the people involved. And of course, in the immediate moment, it did because they got to go home. Hopefully we don't hear anything about like, what was their life like during yeah, those eight years? I mean, was it comfortable for them? Were they her- still harassed? Because at one point passing during the, during the trial, Mildred mentions that like somebody lit a cross on yes, fire in her mother's what, lawn. She's like, I guess it was a prank. And I'm like, ma'am. Yes! The clan burned a cross on your mom's in your mom's yard. That's I feel like she was break. minimizing it. I feel like she was trying <sighs> not to to seem like she was. I think she was she was wanting to be able to address it, but worried about saying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Is, yeah, I. It's just there's this movie was really helpful for me in sort of like I said, fleshing out the story that I never really learned about, mm-hmm. um, and it is telling. I think that we don't really, I think, cover a lot of. A lot of the post civil rights, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the the text at the end, very briefly, right after it talks about how he died, she lived in the house. Um, it briefly mentions that the laws against miscegenation were all over overturned. Right, the the Supreme Court was like, nope, none of these are allowed to exist, except only kind. Alabama had one on the books until two thousand. Two thousand what um, the fuck alabama so i was like it would have i feel like it would have been really productive and useful to spend a little more time on mm-hmm. that at the end of the movie mm-hmm. um because certainly it would have taken us away from them mm-hmm. as the the center of the documentary but to say like the supreme court decided this and not really show like how long it took for the actual decision yeah like to take a effect, bit about and even to pretend that like there aren't still there aren't still people who who believe that right. it's wrong and aren't yeah. still harassing people on the other end of that i found it really fascinating like their life before they got married mm-hmm. because you don't hear a lot in like classes or history books or on film or in book or anything about small communities in the south that are just kind of not segregated where everybody just kind of interacts with everyone, which is what they were. That's the picture they were kind of painting of this mm-hmm. small town that everybody, that's how they describe with everybody. their childhoods, their youth. Right. Um, but, you know, if somebody's burning a cross in someone's yard, that can't be strictly true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have been interested to hear more about like the dynamics of this place and of their upbringings and what that was like, like, was uh richard brought up this way and he just got along with everyone and but things were a little bit different for mildred and she was not as comfortable kind of interacting with white people or what was it like for them when they were you know both growing up in this place mm-hmm. it would have been really interesting to hear more about that community yeah um 
that would have been a really interesting thing um, for me. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like, you know, we get these little glimpses of things that you you are made aware of this larger context, um, but that the, the documentary is not really... And partly, I think this is due to this the format, right? There's not a narrator. There's not a voiceover. The, mm -hmm. the narrative and the argument are being made primarily through the connections and the order of the right. presentation. Um, but there's a, a short moment where we see Mildred grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're being shown those scenes to sort of hint at the the segregation within the town because yeah. of who you see in the groups of people um but it's it's nearly silent and obviously someone's following her around a grocery store with a camera right so i couldn't tell if we were supposed to think oh people are avoiding her mm -hmm. or if we were supposed to think she's afraid to talk to people but or like, she just seems like she's a shy person she's, in general she's very so shy is yeah. But also there's a camera following her around, which is right. an unnatural situation. Right. Um and and people would very likely be, you know, wary. Which or... gets to the bigger questions about like documentaries and exactly. the ability of them to like show yes, us truth. Anyway, just really but <laughs> wish that the documentary filmmaker had at some point indicated, and maybe it was on text on one of the screens, but I don't remember seeing it, where that that footage that black yeah. and white footage should come from I don't because there's an interviewer we hear her, them asked questions being prompted mm -hmm. um we don't see the interviewer right um and and then where was this all this time and what was mm -hmm. it being recorded for all of those questions i was just like i really would like to just know a little bit more yeah because obviously somebody at the time identified this as a story that was needing to be recorded and told yeah but then the footage apparently wasn't actually nothing was actually done with it for years because yeah, that's what it seems like as found footage so from where <laughs> like what did i know where did i it agree come from how did it get made why was it being and who was telling this like who was recording it were they recording it because it appears the same people were doing the interviewing of the lawyers as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was it coming from the ACLU? Was it coming from someone in Virginia? Like, no. I wanted to know those things. Me too. And listeners, if anybody happens to have information about this documentary that we don't have or the lovings that we have not um, talked about here, I would love to hear it. So, yeah, it does um, make me want to find out more. Um, but it's one of those stories that I'm glad to have a little bit more information about. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I had only just kind of generally heard about them before. I didn't know very much about it at all. So, well, there was right. a movie, a biopic that came out uh, later than this, a couple of years later, um, called, I think, just called Loving. Mm. Uh, but I haven't seen it. So no. I don't know how accurate it is. I don't know. Um, Let's talk about the right. other one. Yeah. So, A Secret Love 2020. I do know a little bit more about this one. Um, so, it was directed by Chris Boland, who is um, Terry. Um, what was Terry's last name? um the the great nephew of one of the two subjects um terry donahue mm -hmm. um so this one came out in 2020 and and a little less standard a little bit more um you know it's got iphone footage right like i don't know how yeah. to explain yeah, yeah. why that matters but um a little bit more graphically designed separated into chapters um 
does some things with images that I sometimes was like, don't do that. Well, um, one of, I want to talk more about all those things. But one yeah, of the things I think, because I know that you're, I, I know you're like, it's a little bit different and iPhone and why does that matter? Well, one of the reasons is because if you're recording someone on your iPhone, they might not know it. Which yes. is, in fact, what happens in one of the situations of here. Yes, um, is if you're just sitting there and somebody starts getting in an argument, like we see, yeah. you can surreptitiously start recording them, and that we would hope would present a more something closer to a truthful representation of what really happened. Um, of course, just having the person there who you know is making a documentary about you is liable to change things a bit. Um, mm -hmm. but if you don't if know, you don't you're, know being you're being filmed recorded. in that moment, then maybe. Anyway. All right. So, so this is the story of Terry Donahue and Pat Henschel, um, who, when we first meet them, are elderly women living in St. Charles, Illinois. Um, and the first interaction we see is the two of them on the phone to Terry's doctor. Mm -hmm. And Pat introduces herself as Terry's cousin. Right. Um but we're looking around the house and there's there's one bedroom. They've clearly moved everything downstairs because Terry can't do the stairs anymore. Mm -hmm. um, they're all they're living on just the bottom floor of their house. Um, and as as the story progresses, we learn about them that uh, they're both Canadian, but they've been living in the States since the 40s. Um, Terry was part of the All-American Girls Baseball League. It makes me want to sing the song so bad. I know. We, we are the members of the All right. <laughs> because we grew up near and far. Um, we grew up with a league of our own. Yeah. And uh, and I haven't actually watched the miniseries though I'm dying to. Um, but the idea that we kind of have this cultural awareness because of Gina Davis and Tom Hanks of these this four years of um professional girls baseball during the war during world war ii and so terry moved down from canada to play baseball and um that during that four-year period she and pat met and became a couple and decided to stay in america mm -hmm. um where they lived together for the next 65 years as of the beginning of the documentary uh the documentary follows them from 2013 <clears throat> to 2018 so it's a five-year window into their lives um, but they're elderly. I mean, and they are closeted this whole time. Yes, like for right. that so that's five years. No, uh, one not just for the well, doctors. they're friends now. They have friends, uh, right? In Chicago, where they lived, they gradually were able to develop a family, a, a chosen family. Um, but they talk extensively about how how dangerous it was and how much how safe how carefully they had to be to stay safe. Right. Um, and this is something that that um, they're biological family struggles with i think throughout the movie yeah but at the beginning of the movie the question is okay terry's got parkinson's um pat is very old we need to decide where these two women are going to live and the family they're both in their 80s and, and the they're beginning. about four years apart in they're age four years and, apart and terry is older mm -hmm. um and so terry has how... <laughs> i'm sorry i love how at the beginning they're like I think we've gotten to the point where we're going to need to make some decisions about the house. And I'm like, y'all are 85. I think you have. And I think the, the one point. thing that the documentary is very good at sort of intimating is that the years and years and years of having to rely on just being the two of them. Yes. yes. And the, the, the feeling of unsafeness that would be letting someone else into their house or living in someplace else mm -hmm. that's really it's it's truly deeply terrifying especially i think to pat yeah so pat doesn't have much family pat um pat's parents died in various tragic ways she doesn't seem like they were particularly loving when no. they were alive 
Um, and she only has one surviving brother. And even though they're close, they're, they talk briefly about how he wouldn't understand mm-hmm. if they were to get married, things like that. Um, meanwhile, Terry actually has these three nieces and nephews, one of whom she's particularly close to. I am not sure if the director is Diana's son, but Diana is the one who is I think the so. central figure. I think so, too. I think so. Um, but I never did. So Diana is very close with Terry um, and thinks of her. Sees Terry as, as sort of as her mother. It's her mother. But do we ever get an explanation of like, where is Diana's mother? No, there's this. this like, why does she that, need like, a surrogate Her father mother. was an abusive alcoholic. And I'm guessing her mother was either either had left or had died yeah because i don't say like she says vaguely like terry was there for me and all the things that were happening yeah but it's not clear what all was happening okay so i didn't miss anything it's not clear no i that that's not covered but so she says like terry is the reason i went to college terry is the reason Mm -hmm. i have everything that i have and then she's got a brother and a sister and, and her brother doesn't get a lot of screen time but he's just like i i support and i'm good with this yes her sister's a little bit more like my, I think one of my favorite moments in the entire thing is the sister is clearly less comfortable with the fact that her aunt's a lesbian, but also she thinks it's very important that they get married because yeah. living in sin is bad. It's time. Living in <laughs> sin is not good. She's like, they shouldn't live in sin. Honey. In sin. But they, they've been living in sin for 65 years <laughs> for a whole set of reasons that you don't seem to be completely clear on uh, yeah. socially um, and that you might actually even potentially contribute to, but I'm just going to be like yeah. over yeah. here wondering what you think is happening. Um, but so Diana is trying um, very, very hard to get Pat and Terry to move back to Canada, specifically to Edmonton, which Pat is like, I'm not moving back to the frozen north. Which is um, ironic because you live out live in, in Chicago, Chicago. Okay. You're but in Edmonton the frozen is, north. Edmonton's a different thing. Um, I actually but, stopped the movie for a moment and went to the Weather Channel app to be like, <laughs> they can't be very different. And in oh, fact... I think- no, it was really four degrees colder in Edmonton. Okay, but I do think when Edmonton gets cold, it's a different kind of cold. I don't know. Um, so the idea <laughs> that that like they could be closer to family and Diana could keep an eye on Aunt Terry and um they would have support, etc. And Pat is not super on board with it. At Pat all. wants to move to Florida. Um which would have its own problems, but we're talking pre-DeSantis at this moment. Um, and point. so there's this this tension, right? Like because also between Diana and Pat, and also Terry does want to go to Canada. Yes, Terry, and does not want to go to Florida. It's her family that, right. that they'd be going back to. Yes. Um, and Terry talks about how she she never came out to her parents, but her dad kind of knew, mm-hmm. but her mother wouldn't have accepted it. But this this sort of idea that she's in her 80s before she comes out to her niece. Yeah. Um, And I mean, and her niece even says, like, it's always been anti-Terry and anti-Pat. Like, Like how dim are these people? Yeah. But she says, like, I asked once and somebody was like, they're just friends. And then I just believed that. Like, Uh but she also talks about her father making really crude remarks about his sister that make me think, like, clearly... Members of this family knew she was a lesbian. I think so, too. I think they all knew and they were uncomfortable with it. And so it was easier to tell themselves, oh, no, she says she's not. They're just friends. They're just roommates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's expensive in the States. Right. So but so the that's sort of the crux of the movie, right? Is like, what are what are Terry and Pat going to do? 
And in one direction, it's because they're old and they need help and support. But in the other direction, it's the question of what are they going to do about marriage? Because once marriage is, once the option of being legally married is on the table. Um, so there's this sequence where they go visit another gay couple that they've been friends with since the 50s, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And each couple has one one partner who wants to get married and one partner who doesn't see any reason to. Yeah. And it's a really interesting scene. I agree. And I think it, I think there was a missed opportunity there because they were both like, what's the point? And my brain is immediately going, because you can't legally inherit, because you can't visit that person in the hospital, because health all choices sorts of about health care, right? Like you can't do that unless you are there legally, unless you are legally married or or next of kin. Those are the reasons. But the but the movie never mentions any of that. So and like, I think that's like an do they have something current? legally? Do they have something legally worked out so that this person is their power of attorney and so they can be in the room or something? I don't but know. Should have mentioned because it, I think. If Pat's claiming to be her cousin, mm -hmm. that feels like family members got a say or can right. be made privy to. But in a legal way, would that would she have to be able to prove that if it yeah. ever came down to? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that it feels like, you know, this isn't just a question of love, romance, and a piece of paper. Right. This, and especially when we find out they have a lot of money saved yeah. up. Mm -hmm. um, and who whose money is it? And who, if one of them dies, what happens to the money? Right. Um, there's a lot of implications there. But I, I loved that they had that scene because you get the intimacy of these four friends yeah. and these two men who know them so well. And they have all of these memories and all of these inside jokes. You could just tell mm -hmm. that they, these are people who are family um and what and what implications there are for a bunch of your straight family members to be giving you advice or telling you what to do versus yeah. the people who have known you your entire relationship and Diana and have to the, know what it's what it means to yeah, be Diana the niece slash kind of surrogate daughter keeps saying that these friends in Chicago are your other family. And I kind of wanted to be like, actually, Diana, I think y'all are the other family. I had the same reaction where I was <laughs> like, like you guys kept, are the other she family. She kept like sort of positioning herself like she was like um when so when we see her sort of addressing the crowd at one point, I'm like, you're not the one who gets to thank those people. Yeah. Like you're acting like, oh well thank you for doing us a favor for taking care of Auntie Terry. But like, this is not the dynamic, really. And you're failing to mm -hmm. see their whole life. And especially she's going through a, a photo album at one point. And she's like, I don't even know who these people are. And she's like, very, she's got, she's very bitter about mm -hmm. not being um, central, I think. And have the, how these other people are central. And if they're going to be so important to Auntie Terry, then she should at least know who they are. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have information about this whole huge part of her auntie terry's life and she's not happy about that no so the so the the biggest conflict of the film is this kind of power dynamic and tension between diana and pat who i think both perceive that there's an issue but they perceive it differently because mm -hmm. diana says something like i'm not sure if pat really loves me they both basically say that at the beginning right? i don't like, think this other person likes me very much it's only because of terry mm -hmm. um and i 
and of course, when when Diana is pushing for them to move to Edmonton, it seems like that makes Pat sort of dig her heels in even more. Yeah. Um, especially because she's they're talking about leaving behind not just like a house, a house full of stuff, which is a logistical nightmare. Yeah. But also like that's where their people are. That's where they have yeah. been. Um, but Diana and she get into this, as you were sort of hinting at earlier. They get into it at the dining table one night and the the director records the whole thing on his iPhone and he did get permission before including it in the film. Right. But um, that scene is, is deeply tense, right? Diana is in almost just sobbing mm-hmm. because she's so worried and, and so angry, I think. She's making that this it is all not about her easy, right now. Yeah, that, that that no one's just being like, let's do what Diana says. Mm-hmm. Um, and Terry's doing the thing where she's trying to be on everyone's side. Yeah. And it must have been really hard for her. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Um, and the, the catalyst for that moment is that she hears, I guess she overhears Pat say, don't tell her anything. Yes. And we get and, this and we get that all on... clip, this little moment where they're like getting ready for bed and Terry's like, I want to tell her, I want to show her. And Pat's like, Don't you don't you dare, don't you dare tell her yeah. anything. Right. And we're like, What are we talking about? Don't right? tell and her. Right. And I'm what? actually still not hundred percent sure. Is it the money? Is I think it... it's the money. I think, I think it's, it's that we this is how much money we actually have. This is what we're working with when we're yeah. trying to figure out where we can live. And you have to assume, I assumed that Terry wanted to show her because like they can't afford to live somewhere. They're not destitute. And yeah. Terry's family doesn't have to come up with the money to pay for it because Diana seems to be under the impression that the family is going to have to figure out how to pay for it mm-hmm. because they're talking about $7,000 a month. For oh my God. Life. Yes. I, by the way, didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Holy crazy, crap. crazy expensive. For a one bedroom, it was going to be like, Five thousand for one person and seven thousand for both of them. And I'm right. like, what? And, and then like Pat, really nice of course, place. is like, "That's too much for me." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's too pricey." And then she's like, "It's actually not at all." <laughs> so the revelation that they have a lot of money in savings. Mm-hmm. Um, Diana is clearly pissed, but yeah. also it it comes back to the sort of like pull and and and. You know, she has overheard Pat saying, don't tell her anything. Mm-hmm. And Pat's like, I don't know why I would say that. And But you and definitely honestly, said it. She did say it, right? Like, we see it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting there listening and I'm like, you know what? The thing is, though, Pat saying don't tell her anything was probably for her this, like, not even thinking about it, reactive moment, right? Just being like, I am so used to having to just be us too. Mm-hmm. For us to have to protect ourselves, that I don't know how to let somebody else into the scenario. And also Diana's pissing me off. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just tired of her trying to come in here and tell us what to do. I think Pat for me reads very much as the kind of person who needs control mm-hmm. and has has been able to keep it for for substantially longer than than a lot of people are able to right yeah um and also doesn't have a loving family that makes her feel like you can trust the people who care for you are going to take care of you 
And so she's mad. She's scared. She's about to lose like her home of 26 years, potentially because they do have to move. They have to do something. But for and her to say, like, and that's the reason don't tell I her anything you or messaged you and said, I just want to shake Pat. And you're like, no, I want to shake, shake Diana. Diana. <laughs> and I'm like, I definitely want to shake Diana. She's irritating as all get out because she makes it about as much as she, I think, legitimately cares about her aunt. Yeah, Terry, I agree. And she I don't is, think there's any question. And she's 100 percent correct that they need to get out of that house and find somewhere to live that is safe. And that is a good place for them to be where they will be cared for. She's completely right. She makes it all about herself. And like enough with the crying. You're not the one who has to like be dealing with this. Okay. I don't have a lot of patience with that. But Pat, on the other hand, the reason I wanted to shake her is because she's not just arguing with Diana. Even when it's just her and Terry sitting there. And they're like, well, we don't have to take all of these things with us. She's like, oh, um, we're taking the chairs. Like, we're taking these chairs. We're <laughs> taking those lamps. We're taking those paintings. We're taking everything. When they're packing stuff to move, she's holding a freaking golf ball. What should I do with oh, this? She she's like, throw it away. She's like, ball. this is a perfect brand, brand new golf ball. Oh, my God. <laughs> Priorities. I think, I think Kat. Kat is deeply afraid of change. I do think that yeah. the question of safety is is part of it, right? The, is For Diana, safety is just about health. It's about if you fall down, someone will be there to help you get up. And for Pat, safety is something that is very, very different. Yeah. And when I they do go and tour the um, the home that they end up living in for a year, um, or maybe not even that long, but they do eventually, after a year, they do eventually move into mm-hmm. an assisted living ho- home in the town where they've been living. Right. Um, and they're the first same-sex couple. And you see that this is Terry is, is sitting there and she says, we're a couple. Mm-hmm. And the woman who's been showing them around is like, oh, yes, that's great. But like, they've never had a, a gay couple. That, right. And just saying people are awfully nice here is not necessarily the same as being able to trust that when you move in, people will be kind to you right and we do see them really loving it like they're eating Mm -hmm. their lovely fruit plates and they're having their exercise with the other women and um and appears that they really did make friends quite easily and uh they get married there in this lovely ceremony um but that that they can't know that that's how it's going to go i agree yeah, I, I mean, can see why Pat's like, I'm thinking about where... the chairs, but it's not really about the chairs. It's not about the chairs. <laughs> like, of course, it's not about the chairs. And I can, it might be, it I can might see be a everyone's perspective and where everyone is coming from. Mm. And everybody except Terry is insufferable and, uh, and you may want to shake them <laughs> at a certain point. Um, and but probably Terry. Terry in real life, I would probably find her a little bit like frustrating because she's a person who like always wants everyone she's to mediating. just be happy. Mm-hmm. And that kind of person sometimes makes me crazy. Um, <laughs> I'm like, have an opinion. Um, but Terry is say you're an oldest an child opinion. without saying you're an oldest child. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, I know. <laughs> so true. Sorry. Um, <laughs> say what you actually think. Don't worry about it. Uh, but Terry does try mm-hmm. really hard. She's like, I'm not moving to Florida. That is not for us. She wants to go to Canada. She yeah. is the one who is the older one who's who's in like who's in- worse health situation at the time. Yeah. She's got the place for she. Sh- Pat should be deferring a little mm-hmm. bit. 
in yeah. this scenario um because you know it's not like she's asking her to do something out of the question right right and and honestly moving to where you have younger family mm-hmm. does in the long run make more sense than living in the place where all of your ancient friends are also going to need this kind of support and help and all of their um, friends where they are are emotionally supportive and lovely but none of them are doing anything to help their situation and it's not their job to do that right. but none of them are stepping up and saying well you and, and can they the like we're we're definitely i think seeing this idea though that like when you have over the course of six seven decades mm-hmm. um lived your life in a way that is designed to both keep you safe and allow you to be happy. Mm-hmm. The limits on that in their case are, are very strict. Um, and so I could see why you would value the people who have been there with, with you and know that. Yeah. 100%. Because having to reorient to a situation where you don't have the assurance, but like long-term you're in your 80s but this they is why you too, would hope right this is why you like, would hope that those friends who you've counted on for so long and who know you so well they're having the be, same conversations with their families probably they would be the ones, the ones who, who have... would say uh, we know this is hard but we'll come to the house and help you think about what to yeah. get rid of and <laughs> what to t- take with you we'll help you go look at places yeah and will help but it but doesn't it's a, I, that anyone it, is doing that except for diana i have the feeling or the sense that uh likely there's similar sets of dynamics at play in many of those relationships i think everybody's in so, denial about like yeah, this needs to happen right now we you can't know? we can't persist um but it is you know and of course it is as much about aging as it is uh almost anything else right like mm-hmm. obviously pat and terry's relationship and how they supported and loved each other for the course of 70 years is the heart of the movie um but they're not young women now right um and i think that in general this is a movie that kind of helps to think through how this larger sort of set of generational questions and problems which more and more americans are are dealing with right because um we have more old people than we've ever had before Mm -hmm. um and we also have what what's being referred to as the sandwich generation, which we are just yep. fun for us to be. Yep. Um, that is having to navigate these questions with our parents and our our relatives who are aging, aging. parents and also raising and also our children, children yeah. who right, which is both a lot of effort on both sides, uh, or can be right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a movie that I think. I just don't feel like I'm seeing as many representations of this as, as I would like to see. So yeah. it's really nice to have that element too, where it's like, clearly I think many of us probably have had grandparents who were refusing to leave their homes or that you had to have a fight over when you got their car keys, right? Like right. there's lots of like lived experiences that this movie speaks to, but that I don't feel like I've seen represented mm-hmm. all yeah, that right, often. Right. And so yeah. I really appreciated that as well. Like that, that Pat in particular seems like she's able for much of this documentary to live pretty independently. She's still in pretty decent physical health. Mm-hmm. They both certainly have all of their faculties about them. They're sharp. Yep. Yep. Um, 
but Terry, because of her Parkinson's, has had to has had to acknowledge, right? Yeah. Like we can't just keep doing this. And Pat has to come to a place where she is able to admit, okay, I can't, I can't be the only one that Terry has. Um, and then Pat gets sick. The movie doesn't really explain what happens explain there. What's going on there? But like At right home. after they get married, we cut to Pat in bed and like, why is she in the hospital? And she's I don't know. And then she has to use a well. walker after what's that. What's happening? Like, and that's <laughs> so, when the, that's like the final straw, and they finally move to Edmonton. I was so upset. I was like, what's going so on? I was like, what happened to Pat? I need to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when they do finally move, they are there for just a few years mm-hmm. before. Terry does die yeah um and Pat is still alive yeah as far as I can tell what I found she and Diana actually after Terry's death have been able to sort of build a better relationship which is great which and makes a lot of sense right now that they're not kind of seeing each other as maybe competitors like or like definitely two people who care the most about terry they have to win the loving terry competition Mm -hmm. um now they i think apparently have been able to build a much more sort of mutually loving relationship where they both trust that each other that's great loves each other which i'm so happy to hear because because pat's up there all by herself now which is probably also one of the things she was afraid of right like what if i go up there and terry's family doesn't want me when terry's gone Oh, that's terrible. Because you could tell that was not going to happen. But you, but you can also understand why she would feel that way. Whose stepmother was an evil stepmother and whose parents locked food in the basement. Yeah, it's awful. Might Man, the number that. of tragedies that she dealt with. Oh my with. god, she lost three boyfriends. In a row. In a row. And they died. dying. I mean, it, yes, it was <laughs> World War II. <laughs> but like, she's just sort of like, off. I was engaged, he died, and he died. And then he this died. other guy, and then he died. He died in the war. This yeah, other this guy got tractor rolled by a tractor. Like, then both my parents I know that was a long a time ago, but holy crap, ma'am. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> and her older brother, who it seemed like she really idolized, and his death seemed particularly tragic because well, gosh, the he should have been able to go better. home. He had finished oh. his tour and then one last flight. Oh, it's just horrible. Yeah, you true. can see why Pat might be like, you know what, Canada? No, yeah, that's true. That's We're true. done. I'm staying down here. Um, but on the whole, I really, really enjoyed this one. Like I said at the beginning, a few things that you could tell. I think this is sort of like a director who's like, I want to see what I can do with like these still photographs. And so there's this um, section where we're, we're hearing about Terry's experience trying out for the baseball league. And mm-hmm. there's these still photos of her that are being like animated to make mm-hmm. it look like they're moving. And it's an effect that I find deep, deeply creepy because it's like <laughs> basically like just deep fakes, right? Like it's true. Um, and I can't stand that. There's a Valentine's Day commercial going around the last few weeks that had a bunch of like deep fake old black and white pictures that were talking to you. That and was I was like, weird. I do not want this. I don't want it to exist. I don't want to normalize it. I don't want to make it part of my advertising experience. <laughs> and so watching it in the documentary, I was just like, stop that. Oh, the Ugh. pictures don't move. I hate that. Um, and and sort of like some cutesy graphics and stuff um, using some of their letters as as backdrops. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's a, you know, it's it's a more dynamic approach to documentary filmmaking in some ways it's less um and there is some archival footage or um 
photographs in particular. There's so many photographs and so many little bits of film that's like just yeah. amazing that they have all that. I know. And it makes me wonder if the um like what was the motivation for the film? Was it I mean, it could have been so many things, right? Yeah. Like the fact that they just came out to their families after all of these years. The yeah. I mean, just that Aunt Terry was a ball player is enough to tell her story. Right? right? All by itself. I want to see all of their stories now. I know. And then, <laughs> like, if you're somebody who's interested in making films at all, and you're like, you've got how much film sitting around? Let's <laughs> make your letters. Um, yeah, I think I you're can... right. Like, there's, a, there's like, multiple angles into this where you can see how, how compelling it would be, especially if it is somebody you know and love. Like, your yeah. family has this story um and i do think I it, did... it started out as a movie about this lesbian couple that was able to live a life together and a life that they loved and mm. prospered and thrived in um but kept it secret and then it, the movie becomes about like the challenges of aging and i'm yeah. not sure that those things are woven together as well as they could have been um, but it felt like just kind of the thing that it ended up being about. Yeah, which, I started you know. this one, and also you know this is a a great nephew. If he's Diana's son, he's probably in his like thirties or maybe forties. Like he's mm -hmm. probably not you know an infant. Um, oh, yeah. But the um the things that are interesting to him are certainly going to be the ones that are most immediate, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are the questions my family is asking. Um, but I do love, uh, I love that the movie it doesn't take a, it doesn't take treat their lives as tragic. Um, yeah, and even when there are moments that are incredibly sad, like for me, one of the saddest moments is when they're looking through all these letters as they're packing up to move, and somebody says, "Why are the bottoms torn off?" And I don't remember who asks that. Mm -hmm. And Pat just matter-of-factly says, "We had to keep it a secret. We couldn't leave our signatures. We had to tear off in case our somebody names found them. In case someone found them, so they wouldn't know who wrote them." And she just says it, like that's the reason. This is the answer. Um, the number of ways they just had to be pragmatic about things, right? But at the same yeah. time, we have so much evidence that their life, their life together, was so full, and they had so much fun. Mm -hmm. And they had love around them. So it doesn't deny how unjust the conditions were that they had to to be this careful and live this way. But it also doesn't allow that to overshadow the love and the happiness that these two women had. Yeah. Both of these documentaries the are that way. Years. Mm -hmm. They're showing these couples who are facing this big, huge, profound social injustice. Justice. But mm -hmm. it's actually just about like the two of them. Um and they are not individually really um invested in kind of being activists in any kind of way in either film for either of these couples. Yeah. Um and it's you know, and their lives are um, you know, their their relationships are loving and and strong and all those things, despite like what you know the world is telling them that they're yeah. doing that is illegal or immoral or both or whatever horrible thing um so interesting that they have that in common yeah i think you know these are not romances in a traditional sense uh, in terms of like the narrative structures of either of these stories but mm -hmm. that's really at the heart of both of them is the idea that 
and not in a not in a preachy like bumper sticker way like mm-hmm. love is all you need like not that but just that in these situations to overlook the power of that love or what mm-hmm. their relationships allowed them to have even when they were being denied all of these rights and and privileges um it's it's lovely that the that the center of both films is essentially like these two people just really really loved each other this much Mm -hmm. and um everything else going on around them is tied up to that but is not is not ending that is not Mm -hmm. undermining that yeah 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 i'm glad we did a true like i like you said like documentaries are something that when i watch them i'm like i should do this more yeah, like I learned, I, I learned things, and I found them interesting. But also because I, I don't feel like I'm super conversant in like how documentaries tell stories. Yes. Um, and both of these, I think, are fairly, are fairly straightforward, mm-hmm. right? Like they're they're, but that doesn't mean we aren't going to end up having some questions or aren't going to be left wondering things. Yeah. Um, reminding us that these are still constructions of of. A version of these stories right Um, and neither one of them has a narrator that's trying to tell us like the point of this movie is they both have um like um what are they called sarah um (laughs) like the text cards that show up between scenes where you get yeah where you get like there's a a little bit of information black Uh, screen white writing on the screen or whatever are they not called text cards something like that (laughs) well now that those words are in my head that's all i can think of that's not the Um, right film term but it's something like that (laughs) (laughs) oh no it's over though like once a word is in my head it's too early in the morning for me to come up with i mean honest to god i i feel like when i listen back on this one and be like were all of those words ultimately a sentence like (laughs) did i say anything or (laughs) you've said lots of great coherent sentences don't worry coherent might be an overstatement but um (laughs) but yeah they they limit the the way that information is conveyed Mm-hmm. is yep. through that text on the screen and not through um voiceover right uh and you know i don't know if it's maybe just like maybe like any kind of film like things go in and out of style and in a fashion mm-hmm. but um you know we did have like the michael um what's Moore. his name thank you michael moore sort of moment and mm-hmm. then like morgan spurlock were like they were basically making themselves the subject Right. This movie that's not really about them. I just listened to a great podcast episode on um, Super Size Me the other day. So Spurlock's been in my ah, head. Interesting. Yeah. A maintenance phase for those of you who are interested in health and wellness culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And great also podcast. yelling at your yelling at your computer in agreement <laughs> with Michael and Aubrey, um, which I do a lot of. It's disconcerting to the people in my house. Um, but yeah, this idea that that we had a moment where it was like a lot of obtrusive. Yeah structure and um a person's face or a person's voice sort of telling you here's some things um versus documentaries which i think this is a more traditional version is the the version that isn't doesn't have that kind of um narrator right it's like different styles of journalism right the objective yeah like more um, and with, with documentaries that's always the question right like how much yep. of this can we really pretend that people don't have particular angles or stakes that they're trying to of course yeah bring to the to the table um 
and, and what aspects of the story are given the most space and which ones are maybe minimized or forgotten about. Mm -hmm. But I think with both of these, uh, the larger questions are, are really handled nicely. Like, what am I going to take away from this story? Right. Um, what's, what's valuable to at least consider for how these stories shape or, or reflect experiences for people now. Yeah. Um, given that they both are kind of rooted in the mid 20th century. Yeah, definitely. So awesome. yeah, I'm glad we watched some, some documentaries. Me uh, too. We probably won't do that again anytime soon. <laughs> finding <laughs> these was harder. Like you said, finding documentaries that we could stream. Yeah. Was, it's a little bit more, more of a challenge. Of a challenge. Yep. Um, on that note, next week we will be discussing our book of the month. Yes. Jeffrey Eugenides, the marriage plot from 2011. Yes. And we have decided to pair it with the 2000 film Wonder Boys. Yeah. So this will be Michael. Um, oh, why am I forgetting everyone? Douglas. Everyone named Michael. Thank you. <laughs> all, all Michael's last names are struck from my brain this morning. Uh, Michael Douglas. I think this is his second appearance on the podcast because of War of the Roses. Have we that's seen right. anything else? Mm, I think that's the only other thing. Uh, but this is Robert Downey Jr.'s like. Yay! <laughs> I forgot so... he was in it. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> um, we might become like a low-key Robert Downey Jr. appreciation podcast. Um, I'm here for it, yes. I haven't seen this one in a long time. And Not actually, even. Wonder Boys is also based on a book, which I have read at some point, but I, it has been a while. Um, but if you like the movie, be prepared to find yourself a copy of the Michael Chabon novel, which I honestly can't remember. Like I, I said, I, I like my rereading of Eugenides. I'm like, huh, this is funny how I read this book once and have no idea what it's about. It happens. Um, it happens. <laughs> but it's impressing me more than that suggests that it should be. Like, yeah, that would suggest that I find it un unmemorable now. I'm just not sure where <laughs> I was with it in 2011 that made me sort of like. Maybe I had to read it really fast or something. Very possible. Very possible. Um, All right. So anyway. we look forward to talking about those next week and wrapping up February. And, and we'll a happy also... Valentine's Day to you today, Sarah. What is that? Yeah. You too. Thanks. And, you know, since it's also Ash Wednesday, Catholics all over are like, what, how do we celebrate that, the chocolate holiday? What do we do exactly? On <laughs> the first day of Lent when we're probably giving up chocolate and we're supposed to fast. It's a they I, did it yesterday. That's what a lot of people did. Yeah, yesterday yeah. became both uh Mardi Gras and Valentine's Day, which sounds works. Which sounds like a lot. Yeah. Yeah, Except that is a lot. My kid up from his uh joint Mardi Gras slash Valentine's Day at school. Oh gracious. Yeah, lots of sugar in that kid last night. Oh my gosh. Anyway, right. on that note, have a great week. Yes, you too. Bye Sarah. Bye.